<laughs> Welcome back to part two of our interview with Jared Ficklin. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> You're listening to the Can't Sell This podcast with your hosts, Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambart. In the last episode, you were talking about the theme of the Solarian myth, and and one of those that theme was, and then uh, let me let me do it, let me try, and then you're going to correct me. Okay. But it was to spread love and intelligence throughout the universe. No, pretty close. The pretty purpose, close. yeah. The one of the one of the keystones of the Solarian myth is that the purpose of humanity is to create as much love and intellect for the universe as possible. I would, you know what? That was pretty close, pretty close. Yeah, um, it was. But you brought this up during our uh, conversation with Dre LeBray, uh, which is a few episodes back. And in, in the middle of it, I remember you talking and, and me thinking like, oh, this is such a, this is so great. It's not what we want to talk about right now, but I do want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And when we reached back out to you and said, what are the chances you want to have your own episode? You're like, can we talk the Solarian myth? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I totally do want to discuss that, but I need part of what we do is we, we provide consultation and, and information to the listeners that, that are interested in product design and interested in, you know, being an entrepreneur and interested in counterculture. And I think that the previous episode so well embraced the, that discussion, this, you know, the Solarian myth to me, it, it embraces Stefan, you can agree or, or not, but it embraces our earliest episodes that discussed creativity that discussed, you know, you know, fiction and, 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 and where do we want to be? I'm going to say less, but I'm really, Jared, can you expand on the Solarian myth for us? I, I think it's, I think it's one of the most fascinating things I'd heard in, in, a, in a long time. Let's do some storytelling. I, I think the, with the three of us, there's an opportunity to like explore some of the edges of it and see how much fun we can have. But let's start with what it is. Um, first of all, I was going to do this session at South by Southwest on using futurism in design. And we do that a lot in our design, but personally in myself, um, we, we were gonna talk a lot about how, what motivates humanity more, mm -hmm. truths or fiction? <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff that has come up that, that really speaks to, actually it's the fictions that um, motivate humanity far more than the truths. And the reason is where we left, I believe, you know, just for fun, where we left the last episode. And that's, we are creatures who biologically live in fiction. It's been our evolutionary strategy. We have this big brain, we're 120 pound uh, primates who have out proliferated 600 pound primates. And why was that the case? And that's because the 600 pound primates live in truth they have well-developed senses, sight, smell, feel, better than ours. They have well-developed muscles to handle the physicalities of truth. And that's right. how they approach the world. They approach the world in truth. 
and we approach the world in fiction. We, and the, should I be repeating this now, Hugh, or no? No, sorry, it's not that. I, I think the thing is, is that you're talking about uh, instinct and adaptation and the, the ability to imagine what's coming, right? It's like that when, when living in fiction, you're talking about the concept of, I can imagine what's around the bend. And that thing is either going to be positive or negative, but the, the negative thing is what's going to protect me. Imagining the negative is what protects me from... yeah getting hurt so the the idea of living in fiction that's where i that's where i sort of see it is that 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 thing where your mother says to you i thought you were dead in a gutter you know dead <laughs> yeah. in a ditch you're like yeah what ditch <laughs> right what ditch are you talking about but i mean you're right i mean i could have been i guess I, if that's what you think and yeah the next thing you know is you realize that as a parent you imagine the worst because that's where you live living in fiction is 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 having instinct and imagination. Right, so if I can say on the podcast right now that I'm sitting here in my living room surrounded by some really cool um, geometric masks and interactive art, all the listeners for the most part suddenly imagine that room. They imagine right? their own version of that that room, which is really interesting, you know, yeah. because Whereas we can see if I it. Were, if I were to communicate that con concept to a 600 pound primate i would need to have the smell of the room right right i would need to have a picture of the room right and i would need to present the truth of the room to that primate there is no imagine this room right they live yeah they live what what they're surrounded by is what is an pure interpretation of what their senses um tell them right so so in a, in a lot of ways we are you know i i just playfully say that we are fictional creatures like we live mm. in imagination and it's been a very successful biological evolutionary strategy and then it led to technology and now we have you know um we're, we're at a place in humanity where arguably for the last twenty thousand years we maybe have have kind of transcended the rules of biological evolution right you know yep. red sapiens it's a great book that you know talks about a lot of these theories right now we now have been living under auspices of technological evolution right and we've created but while we were doing that we we did as we did that we created more and more Ooh. fictions to support our numbers right you know first we we had these we used gossip to tell stories about each other which allowed us to relate to someone we didn't know that allowed the establishment of like villages right then gossip turned into you know like okay now it's all the way to social media right it allows us to re relate to millions of people um you know, past, you know, the troop size of our six or five mm -hmm. primates. On the meanwhile, we, you know, we created, you know, um, you know, capitalism, uh, intellectual property, you know, just to name a few fictions that like govern <laughs> our, our world that I'm not sure are described by the laws of, or required for the laws of physics or whatnot. Yeah. Um, and also the generally there's like this feeling that we are at the edge of a lot of fictions, you know, um, and um, people are thinking, oh, stuff has got to change. You know, capitalism has reached the end of its usefulness. Uh, democracy has reached the end of its usefulness. Uh, you know, should we experiment with socialism for a while? But it has a history of, of non-usefulness as well. Um, how do we progress past this point? And it's like, well, maybe all our fictions are kind of like up against a wall and we just need a new fiction. Mm -hmm. um, this is what what I was thinking about with the with 
the person who originally proposed the panel, which was Georgia Francis uh, King, who was a writer for Quartz and is now kind of freelancing. Here I am living in my, in my very naturally human imagination. By the way, her line here that is amazing on her site is, I make intelligent people more intelligible. <laughs> <laughs> I love a good turn of phrase. I love that. Sorry, go ahead. Okay, so here I am driving back from Burning Man, thinking there's going to be a South by Southwest. Um, in my imaginary head at the session during the Q&A and someone asks, well, what, what, what will be the next fiction? What's the next great fiction? <laughs> I was like, well, I better have an answer to that. And so I made one up and it's, that's called the Solarian myth, <laughs> which at the end of the last podcast probably didn't sound so made up, but this is what's um, I think so fun about oh, it. Very made up. No, I'm just kidding. It, it, I really, honestly, like I started searching Solarian. I started searching Solarian myth, ser searching the word Solarian, because I, I figured somewhere somebody had coined that term and, and, and you were expounding off of that. I was very uh, enthusiastically surprised to find out that there was nothing, that it was yours. And I, that to me is like, like it's my greatest joy is to find the creator of a thing and i think it's i think it's i think it's a thing that has uh, an immense amount of possibility probably because i live in fiction as you say but but mm -hmm. i i have a great amount of imagination i think that if you are an optimistic person by nature the solarian myth that you propose is one of those that if you're willing to not temper it with cynicism provides you with with a, a good level of optimism for the future yeah, the greatest myths are the ones where like that's clearly not true but i'll believe it <laughs> <laughs> sure i'll believe that <laughs> why not <laughs> a moistened bait lobbing scimitars from the lake <laughs> <laughs> exactly um uh, so I guess we better get around to it, right? It goes. We're in it now. We're in it now. I want to yeah. hear it. And let's get through the easy parts so we get to the fun parts. Because since last time, we, we've some more little things have gotten invented, including this notion of stillness, um, which is really fun to play with later on. Okay, so basically it goes like this, right? Um, we think of ourselves as earthlings because we evolved on earth. And um, that's simply not true. Uh, more accurately, we are Solarians because we evolved in a solar system around a star called Sol. Um, and it's time for us to begin thinking like Solarians. And this could help us make this transition from biological to technological evolution in the correct way. And so what, uh, uh, how does a, a Solarian think? Well, first, how do Earthlings think and what are the problems there? Well, as Earthlings, our entire world is this planet Earth, and we think that all the resources that uh, can survive are on planet Earth, and all the humans that there can be are that that uh, planet Earth can um, support. And um, therefore, this leads us to do all kinds of things when it comes to the resources. We start dividing ourselves up into nation states. Um, we begin dividing ourselves up into identity. We begin fighting over resources. We're not sure whether we should have more minerals and commit to electricity or if we should have more ecology. Um, uh, generally a, a, a mess. 
The Solarian doesn't have to think that way because the Solarian doesn't have to think that all the resources that support humanity are located on planet Earth. We have the entire solar system to look at, right? Mm -hmm. The second thing about Solarians is um, they have a purpose. Their purpose is to create as much love and intellect for the universe as possible. And this is because those are actually um, to be discovered as fundamental forces um, like magnetism or electricity. Yeah, but they actually um, ha are a scaffold that helps um, support the universe. They help the universe keep from collapsing in upon it upon itself. And are they quantifiable in in this in this scenario? Like you can say like intellect equals yada yada, or love equals something. Like there there's a thing that you can say spread as much of those two things as possible. We like. Well, we don't know how to measure them right now, but in, we'll, we'll figure it out. So, that, right. that, so they will become quantifiable now that we know that they're physical forces and we're able to measure them. And so this, right. this, this qualifies the, the purpose, right? Um, to create as much uh, love and intellect as possible. Like, because literally it'll keep the universe from collapsing in upon itself and starting another big bang cycle. So on mm -hmm. the big bang, the universe, you know, almost like the matrix, right? You know, uh, seeded these areas, strategic nodes to build a scaffold of love and intellect. So she, you know, she created the conditions that intelligent life would evolve through the process of biological and then technological evolution in order to give it a, a chance to, to live as long as possible. Um, and, and, and right. And so now you're like, just take that on faith for a moment and let's yeah. handle this part of like, well, how do you create as much love and intellect as possible? Um, you know, well, it's arithmetic, right? First of all, each human needs to produce as much love and intellect as they're capable of producing each individual human. But then, right humanity needs to be able to create as much love and intellect that it can as a species, right? This becomes a numbers game, right? And if we remain earthlings, this will be a disaster. Earth supports about, you know, four or five billion humans. We're past that now. If we continue to think as humans, um, uh, we're going to crash and burn. And this node of love and intellect is just going to blink out of the universe. That's not what the universe wants, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if we thought as purely humans, well, we, could reduce ourselves down to the number of humans that earth could support and then make sure each human is creating as much love and intellect as possible. But once it becomes measurable, that means that, you know, let's say it's 5 billion is the magic number. Every time we have 5 billion and one people, we have to find whoever it is who's not creating as much love and intellect and kind of blink them out of existence. I don't like that idea whatsoever. Right. What would be better is, is if we stopped thinking as earthlings and became solarians, like took on the solarian mantle, which meant we could look to the resources of the entire solar system to support humanity, right? There might be resources out there to support 7 trillion humans. But to do so, we need to remain the human species for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that if you were to just, you know, um, colonize Mars, um, you would create an island population. And if seven generate and around seven to 12 generations of Martians, you would speciate. And once you have two species in a, in a certain locus, um, they have to start competing for resources once again, and eventually you go to war. And that's not yep. how you create as much love and intellect as possible. So it has to be humanity that spreads out as Solarians into the solar system. And humanity, I'm in the Solarian thinking, is actually a, a family. 
of hunter-gatherers, agrarian healers, and explorers. Right. Hunter-gatherers were the ones who got us through the primary um, biological evolution. Explorers are what helped us colonize the earth. And agrarian healers are, are, are um, you know, what helped, kept us healthy through, throughout that process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now that technological evolution has taken over, and as earthlings, we're completely out of balance as a family. Um, uh, explorers and hunter-gatherers have almost gone extinct. And we're all primarily a, a planet of, of billions of agrarian healers, right? And our, our hunter-gatherers, our explorers are kind of suffering. What we need to do is take our hunter-gatherers and send them out to Eros, send them out to the gas giants, send them out to the asteroid fields to gather resources. We need to send our explorers out to the moon, out to Mars, out to uh, other planetaries to establish colonies to hold mm -hmm. more humans. And what we need to do with the Earth is we need to let the agrarian healers prepare Earth to have the ecological diversity uh, to support these colonies, but also to be the home, the true home of humanity. Right, so instead right. of speciation, it turns out that every seven years, humans probably need to visit the gravity well of Earth, experience her uh, biodiversity, and also probably reproduce on Earth, right? So we need to prepare Earth for this job, right? And I don't think we're doing that very good right now. Let's just take one case study here and think of it as an Earthling and then as a Solarian, right? And that would be electrification, right? We've convinced ourselves that environment is greater than ecology. And then in order to slow down global warming, which is a true threat, um, we need to electrify. But at the same time, we've decided we need to do it on Earth's resources, which has led us to be mining the North Sea floor from Ali Bedham. We're destroying uh, ecologies in Africa for cobalt. And we're like destroying some of the desert ecologies of North America for lithium. Well, all these mm -hmm. things live in abundance out in the solar system. And sorry, for those, for those that don't understand, you're talking about for, for batteries, right? For batteries. Like to create, yeah. For creating storage. So what, Right what, now, our known reserves of cobalt are enough to build enough. If you were to use Teslas, it's enough to build enough batteries for all the citizens of Great Britain. Right. And all the rainforests and, and ecologies of Africa and China, we would have to destroy to get that cobalt because it's literally just strip mined out of the ground. Yeah. Those ecologies are far more precious to solarians than the minerals. Because when you look at the solar system, the minerals are everywhere and they're really cheap and the ecologies are nowhere and they're really expensive. And you need, we need such biodiversity that has evolved in this resonant state of earth because we need to export it to these colonies or these or they will not be successful and humans will not exist mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right and some of them take thousands of years to recover some of them hundreds of years to recover so we can't just simply destroy them on the for electrification when there's an asteroid somewhere that we could just go rope in and bring down orbit around the earth and start dropping chunks of cold ball into the atmosphere right we should electrify on the backs of um, the solar system's research. That's just a, that's a thought experiment of how thinking like a solarian is different than thinking like an earthling. So now you yeah. might make a different equation. You might say, okay, look, um, uh, ecology is greater than environment. We can survive 50 years of global warming on the backs of fossil fuels in order to build the technology necessary to go rope in an asteroid, come in, complete fusion, complete electrification, um, begin 
sequestering carbon through technologies like carbon engineering with the excess energy. And then we can begin um, uh, terraforming Earth to be the most, the best biological, biologically diverse and spiritual, you know, uh, center, a true room, true guy, a true mother to humanity, sure. preparing it for these seven trillion humans that need to populate the universe in order to create as much love and intellect as possible in order to support the universe, right? But if so, you could create, but if you could create efficient sequ sequestration for carbon, for instance, if you could find a way to put it somewhere else, right? Like, so instead of or use it, to grow it on earth, figure a way to create fuel out of it, for instance, you know, like if you could, if you, if, if it wasn't just a matter of like, Oh, our off gassing is something we put in a tank, and we put it underground. It becomes a fuel for something else. Like, I, I think, I think one of our problems that we have mo most often is we see our waste as being waste as opposed to an opportunity right. to create a circular economy. Yeah, yeah and sort of to add to that, um, the thing that that I always found so interesting is so our our obviously all of our petroleum products and our, our fuel is based on you know the the bunch of dead the dinosaurs. Decaying, yeah, yeah, the dinosaurs. Um, and we always like, oh, we're running out because we're running out of of, of dead dinosaurs. But right. we don't ever think about why don't we? How can we take our waste or how can we take what we've discarded? And maybe we'll never be able to use it, but what? How can we make it so that you know, thousands of generations in the future, this is then a resource available. Well, so why us. does why does oil exist in the first place? Right, because it's easy, because yeah. the covalent bonds of hydrocarbons just want to be together. There is no like when lightning strikes the earth, it doesn't charge up a lithium-ion battery because batteries are hard. Now they're necessary technologically for things like space exploration and so that you can, can terraform a planet. And so hard things are valuable, but you're correct. So there's no reason why we can't create a circular economy around CO2. In fact, there's a Canadian outfit called Carbon Engineering that is probably the most advanced in this as possible. They have created a nice little process to take CO2 directly out of the air, fuse it with water and other common hydrocarbons in order to basically to create gasoline. So a little bit of seed energy, enough that solar or wind can feed the plant. These plants are about the size of a gasoline re refinery when they scale up and outside the other incomes gasoline, right? So now you can yeah. burn the gasoline, you can suppress. Now, if you use a little bit of that to, to start growing wood, right? And start building more domiciles out of wood, which is a carbon sequ sequestration model, right? Instead of concrete, right? Or other, or steel or other things that are high carbon release. Well, you can now balance, like literally can take as much CO2 out of the atmosphere as you need to. And now you can decide what's the optimal temperature of the earth, right? So here's this an interesting thing, thinking of like a solarian, you start thinking, what is the right temperature? Because right now we're in this mindset of environment is greater than ecology. So the right temperature is this magic one before man existed. Anything warmer or colder is the wrong temperature. Or the right temperature is, another argument is the right temperature is where nature would have it without man's influence, which separates man and nature. But neither of them seem like really good criteria to me. To me, as a solarian, what's the optimum temperature of the earth? The one that has the greatest biodiversity in support of humanity as part of nature. All the little creatures, the animals, the the, the trees, the plant life, the microbiomes are a very complicated system, right? So whatever, the, which, you know, it might be one degree warmer, to, that's what we should be studying. What's the right temperature? And then the technologies to adjust that temperature, right?
And then, yeah. we, then we need to start thinking, okay, now we have biomes we need to protect. Let's protect them, right? Why is you know, hydrocarbons are easy? Why is plastic thrown away and graded up? Or, or even, now we've made great strides, okay? We've gone into recycling, um, you know, and plastics exist because cotton is hard, right? You know, cotton is a monoculture. It requires a lot of water and a lot of resources, actually, um, to build a cotton shopping bag. And if you can use that for your whole life, you might be ahead of a plastic trash bag, right? But, you know, the, the number of atoms in that cotton bag versus the plastic one are not equal, right? Yeah. A lot less than the plastic one. A lot, lot less, right? This is why they're so cheap to make, right? The problem is, is they shred themselves up, become microparticles, and are killing the ocean ecology. And that ecology is very important, right? So why isn't there a machine sitting on my kitchen counter that I put the plastic bag into? It demolecularizes the hydrocarbons, puts them in little storage bins, and the next time I need a bag, I hit a button and it prints it out for me, right? That's an excellent question. Why don't you design that? <laughs> <laughs> That's, as a solarian, like as an earthling, you're concerned about the environment and getting rid of, of plastics and going back to a biological medium. But as a solarian, I'm going like, that'd be really useful in a spaceship too. We need to be focusing resources on that. Yeah. Um, and, and at the same time, we probably need to be doing everything we can to keep the ocean ecology from collapsing because we really, really need it. So where it's not like we abandon electrification for 50 years, we just try and do the right amount of it. And basically the answer to that is do as much as you can without destroying any ecologies that you can't get back. What is the, what is so, the thing, sorry, what is the thing on Star, you guys watch Star Trek by any chance? Never heard replicator. of it. New, new, the Replicator. So the replicator must have had some giant reservoir of ingredients. Like bio- Oh, you know what it is. You know where it is. Oh, well, I couldn't it's remember the a, name of it. It's not a Solarian no, technology. No, no, no. no. But, but just as our, one of our tangents this episode, um, it's got to be poop, right? Like that's where all the poop <laughs> from, the, from the Enterprise goes into this big bin. T- and then they use those molecules hot. to make it. Yeah. No, I have a totally, not, have a totally not different take on it. This is El Poop. El Poop. Yeah, I have a, or Earl Brown tea. Um, <laughs> I have a totally different take on that um, because the technology they have in Star Trek are basically quantum entanglement, right? And the transporter. So it, right. it's the replicator is, is what happens is you, a computer, T, Earl Grey. And there's a planet called the planet Amazonia. And it has a race of people called the Fulfillicons. And they're sitting there. And what they do is they grab tea and they put it in a transporter and they transport it to, to the ship. It's just, oh. it's Amazon Prime now with transporter <laughs> technology. That's all it is. I want, I want that show. One I of, want, one I want of my favorite crew. One of my favorite Stephen Wright, Stephen Wright's a stand-up comedian. One of my favorite jokes he had was I moved into an apartment and there was a light switch I didn't know did anything so i flipped every so often i'd flip it on and off three months later i got a letter from a guy in germany saying cut it out <laughs> exactly oh my gosh no, yeah, so search, they're not solarians they're not they're not doing molecular molecular oh no there. but it is but so here's the hold on a second sorry so sorry hold on one minute but that is that is an actual technology that could benefit 
everybody. If you could chuck your shopping bag oh, yeah. into a grinder and it ground into a small paste mixed with a bit of water and extruded a filament and allowed you to 3D print yourself a bag, pretty you, amazing. Us makers have this in a soft form already. Like we know that our PLAs and we know where PLA yep. practices, plastics are. And if you're a big 3D printer, you're taking all your scaffolds, all your bad prints, other PLA, you actually can put them in a machine that melts them down and re extrudes them yeah. into printing medium that you put back into your machine, right? That's a, that's a big expensive form of it. And, but we need the, the demolecularizer form of it. Right. And yeah. Then, right. So just like the CO2 and this, right. So, Solarians practice something called ecopoesis, right? Basically, which is this maximizing of beauty and ecology, right? So there's a spiritual side to Solarianism as well, right? The earth, the, like, if, you, if you're on you know, Mars and you, you've lost track of what it is um, to be an earthling, right? You've lost track of what earth is, right? You're not going to have the same beauties, the same uh, sky, or even the same view of the sun as you would um, on earth, right? Mm -hmm. and, you need places like the Mura Woods or the Playa in the Black Rock Desert or West Texas or the Gobi Desert in China. There's a lot of places that engender a spiritualism, right? That gives you a teaching of, of, uh, and helps you maximize your love. And so there'll be pilgrimage. And this is where the stillness thought comes in, right? So I was thinking about Solarianism a little bit and I was like, oh, we, we do this thing in meditation where we sit and we equate, you know, we talk about being grounded, right? Feeling connected to the earth, right? And a lot of yoga sessions even start with this notion of like, feel, plant your feet, feel their connection to the earth. Inhale, exhale, right? And we, and so in a lot of meditation practices, you actually don't move. So you can feel grounded, right? So mm -hmm. earthlings, we equate stillness and being grounded. But if you were a solarian and you looked at this earth, this earthling practicing stillness, like the radical stillness from earlier, you're going like, what's wrong with them? They're not still at all. They're moving 11,000 miles an hour yeah. <laughs> around the sun. They're grounded. I'll show you stillness. Like go find a Lagrange point where gravity is basically pulling on you equally in all directions. And now you're still, right? And so I think this is really fascinating that you could start thinking about these spiritual practices slightly different, right? So people who are spacefaring solarians would need to travel to like spiritual places on earth so they can feel grounded, right? Mm -hmm. Grounded is actually attached to the one G gravity well of earth, right? And there's an interesting thing about being grounded. You can move, you can choose a vector when you have the such a strong influence of gravity. Okay. Yeah. It's a great space to make a decision. Right, to meditate and make a decision because you're feeling grounded in the earth. You feel safe in her protection. You're not going to drift off in any direction. Whereas when you're stillness in the Lagrange point, right? Unless you have some sort of energy, you can't move. Like you're there. You're truly still, right? Mm -hmm. So now think about release and leaving something behind, right? Now, if you were like going, flying through space and you leave something behind, you might push it behind you, but it's still moving towards you. If you slow down, it's going to catch up. So you can't truly leave it behind, right? If you're, if you're in, in orbit and you push it out in front of you, it might circle right around and catch you again, right? However, if you reach stillness and you drop something there, it will stay there until you leave. So I can imagine like spacefaring, like 
earthbound agrarian healers building these temples in the Mura Woods or the Playa where you could come and feel grounded at moments when you, when you really needed to make a profound decision. And then areas in space where they're like these Lagrange points where spacefaring Solorians build these temples to stillness and earthlings would come up and, and visit them when they needed to release something. Like they, these might be the sites for, for, for processing grief or um, you know something, uh, 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 trauma, right? Uh, I, and I just really love this idea that in the, the Solarians could have this like yin and yang to their spirituality, that it's so kind of um, orbital with itself that one doesn't become like the dominant spiritual center over the other, that they're both really required to each other. So it really keeps humanity, um, you know, bounded as a family. <laughs> and so it's just really, I, do, I just really love playing with this uh, Solarian myth to see where it takes it. Um, and, but ultimately, um, anyways, I'll let that idea just sit, and then I have like this this third idea that I think is like mm. one of the kookiest parts of the myth, but one of the most fun to play. To play with. <laughs> the idea that you're gonna say there's there's a kookiest part to the whole thing, you know? <laughs> I'm just like, could you imagine? Okay, so we 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 will put someone up into orbit on the ISS, and they will stay there for. I believe the longest is around a year, right? Like mm -hmm. they're not there for a long time. They come down and they, they need to be supported physically for yeah. a good length of time before their muscles have reacclimatized themselves to gravity. And you're yeah. like, every four years they should come back. And, and I'm like, four years, there'd be a, a, a little pile of goo, you know, like they won't be capable of, of holding themselves up. I mean, from, the expectation space, of course yeah. is there's, from there's space. a certain level of uh, hypothesis that we will have figured out how to keep muscles from atrophying and we will, you know, well, I mean, th that whole well, other thing. What one G spins, but like from Mars, it when it's not as severe, it's one sixth the gravity yeah so yeah it's so amazing I, I wanted to to sort of circle back to just one thing about terraforming and and this idea that um i mean there's a theory that rather than trying to terraform an entire planet uh, it would probably be uh cost less energy and be uh more plausible to engineer humans to live in different environments uh and then but what you would like so it would basically be genetically engineer humans to push their evolution or and then that would then push evolution in a different direction for a subsect of humans that were designed to live on mars let's say yeah I'd work however speciation, but yeah that's what i was going to say but then the problem becomes that now you've created a, a a point where now it's two species and now we are no longer the same and do we then can we can we find a way to still identify as one race that has multiple different species well, we would have to, or we wouldn't be yeah. producing as much love and intellect for the universe as possible, mm -hmm. right? So it's a mm -hmm. risky strategy in, in, my, in mm -hmm. my book. Also, it feels regressive a little from the Solarian myth point of view, because um, it's a biological evolution stat strategy. It's like trying to take biological evolution further than it was meant to go, than perhaps the universe meant it to go. The universe needs us to transition to technological evolution. Um, and that's because of the, the third wacky chapter. <laughs> oh here we go <laughs> okay um and that's let's return to love and intellect being actual physical forces right and so now i'm gonna throw a bunch of like pop physics and astronomy that's like totally provably wrong 
but perfect for the myth, right? Like we, we saw the big bang and it meant the universe was expanding equally in all directions, right? And then right. we noticed that it wasn't doing that. And we're like, well, it's atmospheric distortion. Let's launch a, a telescope into space and we'll see that that's the case. And then we launch a telescope into space and we're like, well, nope, things are not moving at, the, at uniform speed. Some things are going slower than others. And we're like, well, there must be more matter in the universe than we can um, observe. There's dark matter and that's creating gravitational forces that are not evenly distributed and that's slowing some things down. But we never could detect the gravity, the, the dark matter. So we said, well, there must be anti-gravity that's keeping us from detecting it, right? <laughs> and there's a bunch of science fiction written on this really great, right? And then we like learn more about subatomic particles. We're like, well, super string theory, you know, 10 dimensions of space, all wrapped up in a spiral. It turns out at the bottom of the spiral, things are much closer than they were above. And that really all the fundamental forces are just resonating strings, right? And this led to more science fiction like phylotics. And then recently, we there was a theory put out that these locuses of the of galaxies not moving at the same space, space maybe are connected by specific strings that vibrations um, than the rest of it, right? So what do you think those are going to turn out to be? Love and intellect. We're, when we discover the forces, the physical forces of love and intellect, we're going to see that it's connected to other centers of intelligence in the universe, which as we started at the beginning of the hypothesis, that the universe, she placed these centers strategically to help her build a scaffold to help her expand. So at the end of these phylotics, these phylotic streams of intellect and love are other intelligent societies. So what's the end game of the Solarian myth? It's the ability to meet other intelligence in the universe and then ultimately receive the gifts of interstellar travel. And it'll happen in stages. First, we'll discover these forces, we'll learn how to measure them, and then we'll learn how to manipulate them. So like quantum entanglement, first we'll learn how to communicate through the love and intellect with these other um, uh, intelligent um, uh, air pockets in the universe. And then, if and, the, and we'll only be able to do that once we have a sufficient love and intellect traveling. So once there's enough humanity creating enough love and intellect, those forces will be strong enough to send communication to them. And then there's a second threshold. Once you can create a certain amount of love and intellect, the forces become strong enough for you to grab onto them and use them as transportation. And that, that is the point at which you have the gift of interstellar travel. It turns out warp speed has nothing to do with gravity and magnetism and everything to do with love and intellect, right? First, you have to cultivate it in order to... Now, if you think about this in terms of like other science fiction, like the dark forest theory and other things like this, it makes sense, right? You can't actually meet another intelligence in the universe until you have sufficiently strong love and intellect that you would know not to destroy them. And that is the design of the universe herself right she doesn't she hasn't fully succeeded in this which is why the big bangs keep happening but perhaps now this is the, the go around where she does right and so basically the in the end game of of the solarium myth is we either remain earthlings and roast in the fiery hell of, of global warming or we become Stellarians and receive the gifts of interstellar travel. And if you think, if you think love and intellect and, and the solar system is beautiful, wait until you have uh, uh, the gifts of interstellar uh, travel and meet other intelligences. Well, I think the choice is easy. I personally don't want to rest on hell and earth. For sure. I, I mean, it's interesting because then like, I was going to say there's this whole 
sort of mathematical thing about how as human beings will never be able to explore the entire universe because it's expanding faster away from us than we could ever travel. Mm-hmm. And that very neatly ties that up. Like there are points that are being kept specifically within, you know, the realm of travel for us to meet these other uh, intelligent uh, civilizations, but not only that, but it also, yeah, well, especially once we, yeah, once we've hit that, that point, but it's, it's interesting in that it also answers the Fermi paradox in why we haven't connected with these other civilizations because we're not ready it has nothing to do with them not being out there or them not being able to hear us we're just not ready yeah nor can they connect with us mm-hmm. because until we produce as much love and intellect the channel is not open right? yeah the the toll booth has not no. opened up yet. yeah yeah it's just a dial tone <laughs> It's, it's like, you know, they, they may be at this point, I think they're probably aware of us, you know, and some of them may be already traveling between each and each other. I don't know if, if this evolution is a constant in the universe. We think once we can ever measure love and intellect and once we applied this to all the expansion rates and stuff, we might be able to guess, you know, whether that's true or not. Um, uh, uh, but um, until such time, seems like we need to change our, our 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 focus we need to you know become like start thinking like solarians stop thinking like earthlings and start producing as much love and intellect as possible and begin you know writing the scripture so to speak of all the different ways to do that from circular economies eco-poesis curated capitalism at you know logistics by adhocracy like all this like cool future thinking it's a reason to be pro- progressive rather than to be regressive with our our fictions it gives us a whole it seeds a whole um, pantheon of fictions to write in order to uh, achieve this purpose. Yeah, I mean, to, to me, the, the biggest issue that that we run into is the idea of, of we are constrained by one dimension, which is time. So we see things as very linear because we go from point A to point B in time. So one of the one of the biggest issues is that when you look at <clears throat> when you look at uh, the expansion of the universe, for instance, the furthest point in the expansion is not us, where the Milky Way galaxy is not as far away as, as other points. Those points have spent more time than yep. we have. So if we've been around for five, like if, if the Earth has been around for five billion years, there's some place that's been around for 10, right? Like just based off of how long it took for that particular thing like like the whole universe was not around for five billion it's been around for longer so the idea that we may be in this position in which we've sent a probe or we sent a satellite out and here's our golden record and here's the message we want to commit to the universe and some alien went oh okay (laughs) walked away from it i love the fermi paradox like to me that is like it's the best way to describe and and it it feeds so directly into this solarian concept of you know if you haven't accepted everyone on your planet as being on your planet and being worthy of being there then you don't deserve all the rest of it you know yeah you'll never get the gifts of interstellar travel (laughs) i love it i love it i mean when you and and to bring it back to star trek god forbid but i mean like to bring it back to star trek the the idea of the first the, the movie first contact like the only reason they got contacted at all was because one guy figured out warp speed right one guy figured out warp speed 
made a, an initial run and there were have to be a Vulcan ship within range to see it and go, Oh, Hey, they got warp speed neighbors Let's talk to them, you know? <laughs> and that's, and, but it's not like that. It's not like earthlings were in a good spot. <laughs> it's not like, you know, especially when you watch the movie, you're like, Oh, there was no way it's, the Vulcans, <laughs> the Vulcans line went, hello, you, you know, no, no, no. they should I, never I have loved, talked to I that love guy. the idea that the, the Vulcans go down and, and just like, hey, you guys trying to warp speed. Congratulations. Welcome to this galactic civilization. But then like Ooh. cut to like three days later when they leave Earth and like, yeah, let's just delete One guy's that. got a yeah. mohawk. Like delete one it got from a the map. Let's not. Jesus Christ. You're not going one back. One guy's got a face tattoo. <laughs> you guys went like, two like, different directions. <laughs> you went this direction of like, they're like, okay, no, they're not. They're not making it. Like that's yeah. look, let's not no, me too. That was, that, these... that was my reaction too. I mean, it was like, but but that but the, the premise of why like the Vulcans <laughs> and the like idea the was the Vulcans were the first ones that spoke to them. Yeah. It's like, of course, it in my version of the movie, they end up at a skate park and they're like, oh, okay, they can't be that bad. <laughs> that's cool. called that's a callback. Kinet, this kinetic sport <laughs> they got going. But um, uh, so I, I, no, I, I don't know. I I can't equate Solarianism. I can't find too many parallels mm -hmm. in, in in Roddenberry's universe mm -hmm. to the Solarian myth. No, it's, no, I, it, it's too fantastic. But I, but I, I definitely I don't wanted mean to. Solve... I don't mean to keep calling it back. I think the thing is, is that when as we discuss it, I keep thinking about other science fictions right. that I'm aware of. So I mean, yeah, I did but... I did link to those in the in the chat. One was The Martian. When you talked about the idea of yeah. like having these quiet moments in which you can be still and you can see the vistas and appreciate it like he talks about like i stop and i look and i and i do it because i can i look at the things around me because i can and the other one was uh we talked about um long interstellar travel and, and or, or what would be involved with long travel and at astra is a good example of that in which you know they use the dr ho kind of thing to keep the muscles going uh, so he can go from one planet to another. And then the last thing was I linked to was Titan, uh, the Titan, which is a, a, a movie with Sam Worthington, where they genetically mm -hmm. engineer people so that they can go exist on Titan, the, the moon of, of uh, Jupiter, I'm going to say. Yeah. Um, and I think I'm, that I'm that's adding a few to it. And I think that was one of the really interesting things, Jared, when you when you reacted to to that when you said, well, 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 that doesn't feed into the Solarian myth because of speciation. Speciation is is one of the things that drives so many of of, of science fiction's yep. greatest greatest um, conflicts is the idea yeah. that if if I've been on Mars for a number of generations, I'm a Martian and I'm no longer human, and you can't have my shit. Although. I'm here because humans put me here or humans were put here to get my shit for humans. And so as I mean, long you as guys you don't consider are, yourself a human, that's the end of it, you know? Yeah. And you guys have read The Expanse, yeah. right? That's the whole mm -hmm. driving yep. force mm -hmm. of The Expanse, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, no, that's, what I, that's where I'm coming from is like the belters who, you know, they're in the Kuiper belt, like they can't do their shit, you know? Like they, once they get onto Earth, they're like they're like oh my god i can't i can't move i can't do anything you know it's 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 a fascinating thing i think i you know i love the idea of a brand new type of of uh science fiction and mm -hmm. i know that when we talked to, in the futurism episode i talked about the book earth by david brin and and how he had this gaia theory that you know 
because of our interconnectedness, because of the networks that we had created, we were going to create Gaia. We were going to create a, a, a cognizant earth. And it was yeah. that that cognizant earth was going to be the thing that drove us to be better citizens of that planet. And then, and, yeah. and at the end of that book, cognizant earth was able to communicate with other planets. And that was where like, if there were a sequel to be had, that was where the sequel was spawned. The, the idea that it didn't matter that people were still there. It was the earth speaking to other planets. And I think that that's where we have our biggest problem when it comes to Solarians versus all these other ideas of, of uh, you know, interstellar travel, whatnot. It isn't, it, it isn't about the denizens of the, of the, celestial body it's the celestial body itself and george yeah. carlin said it best earth is never fucked earth is gonna be there no matter what we're fucked people are what is are, are what is gonna go the earth will yeah. evolve the earth will change the earth will be there so like so whenever we want to we need to accept our roles as custodians of a celestial body versus we're going to mine the shit out of that thing. So we yeah. can get other things that we can mine the shit out of. That's why you know? it's built. It's built into the Solarian myth that you cannot achieve the purpose of humanity without earth as Gaia, without earth as mother and womb. Uh, the problem yeah. is, is we're still living in the womb. Um, and that's not the way motherhood works. Like it's time for us to leave and prepare yeah. for her prepare her for, for motherhood, right? But we can never escape her, right? I, th I want to continue with the reading list here because I threw a bunch in here that I think are really good. One I is- I saw um, them, that's great. Yeah, Kim Stanley Robinson, the red, green, and blue Mars, or red, blue, and green Mars. Great book for terraforming. Mm -hmm. And also a heavy discussion on these island populations and how they can lead to warfare because they actually do a revolution between Mars and Earth in that book that's really good. Another right. one is, is also by Kim Stanley Robinson. This is Aurora. Aurora is about a generational starship. And there's such a heavy discussion on um, ecology, like what it, how much ecology it takes to support humanity. Mm -hmm. There's a huge discussion in this, in this ship. The second thing is how specifically tied humanity is to the ecology of Earth. Okay, they are trying to do the escapist thing where they go and colonize another planet without any spoilers. You learn, a, there's a lot of fun science fiction about how intertwined the uh, uh, biology is in this idea and how much, how much you are tied to your home evolutionary planet. <laughs> the third one is a dark forest. This is Chichen Lu, a Chinese author. And I mentioned the dark forest theory, and this is where I read about it. It's the three body problem trilogy. And in the dark forest is a very interesting idea that um, uh, um, uh, about um, why um, it's another answer to Fermi's equation, like paradox, right? <laughs> His answer is why don't you why aren't why aren't you seeing all these other intelligent lives? And it, and it, the answer is very is very much um, because as soon as you become intelligent, one of two things happen. You either realize that if you make any noise, you're dead, <laughs> or you make noise and get killed. 
it's called the dark forest theory. Uh, and it's why That's you great. don't hear all the radio chat and chatter because there's intelligences that realize this early on and remain silent. And there's those that don't and end up destroyed by a, a more advanced civilization that realizes that two civilizations are can't. So like Solarian myth very much tries to answer that through, through mm-hmm. when you're allowed to blue remember blue remembered earth is a great book about, um, um, colonizing solar system and what you have to do to the ecologies of earth it starts from the premise that you need the ecologies of earth like to have a lunar base or to have right. a space station or mars and it has a whole bunch of really fun discussions about what that looks like it also goes the genetic direction you so you, yeah. you might like this well i mean, it, well. I mean it, it's a very it's a very good point the, the idea that we would require as much nitrogen oxygen mix to survive we would need as much gravity to propagate we would need the right amount of humidity in the air we would need the amount of mm-hmm. liquid that 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 is currently yeah. you know we always think of it as like we're just going to build another earth but we don't need all of that you know what i mean yeah like we don't we don't need the things that we think we need because we're on the thing we need as soon as we don't have that, as soon as you don't have all the things you think you need, you realize what you actually require to, to survive. You know, the yeah, problem is that no one, wants to, no one wants to not survive. The subsistence living is not a thing that, that anybody strives for. We're not like, boy, I can't wait to no. just fucking live for another day. This is <laughs> the best day ever. You know, like, yeah, you don't do it. There's uh, like in, in the in the Kim Stanley Robinson Mars trilogy, there's like a fascinating like period where they're trying to figure out what eco- what economies can exist interplanetary in the solar system. And one of them that is proposed is a nitrogen economy that was like a, a, a currency that could survive um, all the planets. <laughs> I couldn't find the link to this, but uh, I just put something else um, that speaks to Michael Crichton's views on uh, man destroying or saving the planet. And I, I don't 100% subscribe to his view, but uh, I did like his perspective or the answer that he gave this one um, uh, audience member at some kind of town hall where, where somebody stood up and said, you know, in, in several of your books, you have characters who denounce that man is destroying the planet. And I want to know if that's your point of view and I want you to back it up if it is. And he had this really smug look on his face and Michael Crichton just said, I think it's completely vain to think that man could destroy the planet. I mean, the best that we could do is destroy it for ourselves. Like this is a, this is a planet that has lived through multiple mass extinction events and it always finds a way to keep going regardless of, of the, you know, hundreds of thousands of species that have died out. So it's vain to think that we are the, the only answer for this planet. And uh, I think that that is very humbling. And if you take that from a Solarian standpoint, it's like, this is our home, but we need to be, think bigger than that. We need to move outwards because if we destroy our, ho- our home, our, even our home won't care. Like it, right. it In- will, yeah. In Solarian thinking, man is part of nature, therefore subject to the, all the whims of biological evolution. And 
tells so it has to play within those rules mm-hmm. right and it's funny like this goes back to the beginning right it's like that's is the fiction that man lives in that they're not part of nature and that they could destroy oh, yeah. the planet <laughs> it's like it's like, that's how, it's like such yeah. you know this is how they've managed to like live in fiction but we're just ant, like we're ants right um yeah we're out and even even like this idea like i, I i've made this argument before i said is a beaver dam synthetic or is it natural like is it because an animal made it well well but it's an animal so it's part of nature cool so is a skyscraper something natural because an animal made it because we're animals if we want to what do we call what do we call the microbes that make oil right yeah yeah are they better or worse than exxon mobil (laughs) <laughs> the big difference is no one, none of those things are trying to profit off the the things they're making. A beaver is really just trying to just trying to create its own ecology, right? Like yeah. it's yep. damming up a space so they can create a pond so it can feed off of whatever the fuck it. But you can kind of say that that is a that is a profit. It's trying to it's trying to change the environment so that it right. can profit from that. But there's not but, one but, beaver standing but, over a bunch of other beavers yeah. going, "Build this dam for me because I'm yeah. too fucking well, lazy," you know, like or, or using no, Facebook. A, I'm a Texan and a Mexican, so I clearly do not understand uh, uh, these beavers as well as, <laughs> as well Canadians. <laughs> but um, so maybe you can answer this for me, like. Do, do you think beavers live in truth or fiction? Because if they well, live in fiction, truth, they, man, they're they, truth. Yeah, beavers truth. are very much living in truth. Yeah, do you do you yeah. not? You, but you do know what a beaver is. I mean, that's my question. Like, you know what a beaver I mean, is? Hypothetically, from like cartoons and nature shows. Yeah. Yeah, cartoons. Okay, well, that's going to solve everything. <laughs> I don't know. What, I'm, don't know what they taste like. <laughs> I don't know what they taste like. <laughs> I know what they taste like. <laughs> if you ask deli- me, they say, taste like freedom. <laughs> no, <I'm> just <laughs> where the entire economy of Canada is built off of beaver pelts. Like that's the that's yeah. the end yeah, that's and true. beginning of that conversation. It's just oh. beaver pelts were what drove the economy of of Upper Canada and Lower Canada for hundred and whatever years you know what i mean like that's the that's the craziest part of it is like when we joke about the fact that beavers were terraforming before we knew what terraforming were mm-hmm. right like they were creating dams so that they could create ponds so that they could then get spaces that were comfortable for their families like that's what beavers were doing and and we turn around and, and just go man I, that fur is good and and like yeah, and the the French are doing the same thing, and 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 the English. Well, we and the saw French, a beaver, and we imagined a coat, and we're like, oh, yeah, just immediately yeah. going, man, that that shit is like water impermeable. <laughs> well, as it far just, as we concerned, we could be beavers too. <laughs> you know this this duck hat isn't keeping the water off my back like I thought, so must be yeah. a beaver is going to do it. <laughs> like water off a duck's back. You know, a beaver pelt is totally off. So, like, that's the thing is, like, so it's very so Canadian. Like, I usually use the anthill stuff. And, like, when I'm telling this yeah. metaphor, I'm like, aren't our what's the difference between our city and an anthill scale? Right. But, um, <laughs> but have you seen the guy that, that poured molten metal down an ant, an yeah. anthill, and like dug it all out to like show what they had done? 
Like they yeah, they created a space for themselves, and that that to me is what what we're talking about. Like it's it's about adaptation and creation, right? Like like a that's lot a of biological what... compulsion, right? That is a exactly biologically that. evolutionary exactly that. compulsion that we still express in a certain way, but using the technology that we've accumulated, right? And so it's like this, we're at this weird transition point between biological and technological evolution. We can't, we got one foot in each and we can't quite make up our mind, right? And, and, yeah. and that, that's a very fragile and dangerous point for an intelligent species in the universe, as far as I'm um, concerned, or willing sure. to believe in the myth, right? And that we need to commit to technological evolution, but with mm. a purpose, right? And understand that biological evolution's purchase purpose was to spawn intelligent life and then to support it as Gaia, right? So it doesn't go away, but it needs to be utilized to produce this ecological diversity needed to expand humanity. Humanity needs to start leaning a little more towards technological evolution while remembering right while remembering their biological evolutionary roots this is what we were talking about earlier when i was like this is why we can't go the genetic engineering path that's a biological engineering strategy that leads to speciation which leads to local warfare and the collapse of this node and then the collapse of the universe following it but how does how does that get affected by you know are you talking about the collapse of capitalism the collapse of people looking only out for themselves like like Solarian, the Solarian myth. It's pretty hard to look out for just yourself while trying to maximize as much love and intellect as possible. For this the is what I'm saying. So, like, so, so we're we're in a situation where, so your your point of view is that there is an equal. We've we figured out equality at this point, right? Like, there's, there's not like it's not like there's all these issues where like one person can get great health care and one person can decide whether or not they're going to get health care or rent. Right, like I don't, I don't say perf- I, I, fairness more than equality, right? Because I don't think it's going to turn out when we can measure love and intellect that all humans produce the same amount. And I don't want to end up in a situation where you're like, okay, there's a level that you have to produce, and if you don't produce that, we we squeeze you out, right? And that's where equality can lead you. Um, but there is this com- need to take each human and make sure they are producing as much love and intellect as they can. And that requires caring for them, right? I have a different different word for you. And this is the thing is love and intellect. You keep saying love and intellect, love and intellect together are empathy, right? So you're talking about an empathetic culture An empathetic culture is, is a culture that understands and tries to tries to understand the other people within its within its own own world, right? Like that's that's what love yeah, and intellect are. Yeah, yeah, you know that it's the, the uh, yes, yeah, yeah. You, <laughs> it's a good union. Of. I was trying I to think, think of like I think a it's crazy the two words. Like you, crazy, you, you, you've said a bunch I'm of. Thinking I, of I keep crazy thinking like metaphor, what's the difference? Right? The three of us, like the three of us, and one other person are in a station wagon, and the station wagon runs off a of love and intellect, right? And you get hangry, right? Because you haven't had your Snickers bar or whatever the hell, right? And it slows down. <laughs> the car slows down and we're like, uh, how do we get to speed up the car again? Well, we're gonna have to pay attention to your hunger and offer you some food and get you back into shape, right? Yeah. We can't get angry with you because now the car slows down even more. Even more. Right? Yeah. And eventually it stops, right? So, and, so that's what I'm let, saying. Let me, let, me, let me flip this around and let's look back 
so if we're trying to move towards um, more a, a greater output of love and intellect, you, you could argue that the hippie movement of the 1960s was getting us further along that path than we've ever seen before. And that because it was kind of crushed and we, we moved away from that. And there was, it was definitely a counterculture movement. Like the, the yeah. hippie movement was very counterculture. Um, so are there forces that are then trying to, to oppose love and intellect? That's, that's my question now. And are those forces that are external to us or are those, or, or is that just our, our, our own, um, selfish survival instincts that are pushing back on love and intellect? I think the competitive, I'm going to add, so it's a good question. It's a fun part of the myth, right? Where's the devil in this myth, right? And um, the, I, I, I'm going to have to come up with an answer on the spot and then I'll think about it more <laughs> and then maybe I'll, I'll come up with a better. My answer on the spot is there are, within biological evolution, there are these latent forces that require a, a competitive nature, right? These chemical forces, this whole like, who is more evolved, wheat or humans, right? Who is, who is practicing the better evolutionary strategy, wheat or humans, right? Because <laughs> wheat is now this dominant plant that cares very little about the other plants and it's done so by producing bread and therefore getting humans to plant it everywhere, right? <laughs> who's, the, who's the greater force here? So I'm gonna say the enemy here is that when you reach the limits of biological evolution, you have to be quite aware that it leaves you, it leaves in within you this competitive nature to destroy everything else. And that's what you have to really watch out for. And I agree with what you're saying about the sixties and the hippies, like what the, you know, they went through a lot of experiences that's, you know, that have been around for a long time since antiquity and that are coming back actually, um, that really give, really give you insight that love and intellect are actual physical forces. Um, I'll just, I'll only go that far with it. <laughs> well, right. and, like and, it. <laughs> and so I, I actually, I shared another link and, and the link was for the movie, The Liney from 1999. And it was Peter Fonda as a, a hippie counterculture guy that, that gained a lot of success and, and, and all of a sudden had money and, and all this thing. The problem with the sixties was the people that, that, you thought of as counterculture were no longer counterculture. They were the culture, right? So then they made a lot of money and they were protecting what they had. So you looked at, at the people that, that leaned back and went, yeah, man, I don't care. They, they gave a shit. Eventually they gave a shit once they had something to lose. And a lot of cases, what happens is the people that had nothing to lose that, that managed to fight for everything they had got something and then all of a sudden has something to lose and they no longer had the fight in them. And that- I would offer this too. I'm listening, I'm sorry, yeah. you keep going. No, no, I'm yeah, listening um, to you. Yeah, 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 go, go. If you're finished, um, uh, 60 years ago, the myths of capitalism and the constitutional republic and the nation states were really strong. Mm -hmm. and really, really productive. And so the idea that another myth might come along that would dethrone them, it was too soon for that. They reacted yeah. with force and authority and, um, 
and those were the dominant fictions. Like, you know, I, like I mentioned in the, in the, our, our, our first podcast, not the previous episode, the first one, I want to write this book called Funeralisms. Today is different than 60 years ago. Today, we're, yeah. we're, we've come up against the edge of a lot of these myths. So Funeralism is this book where chapter by chapter, each chapter is a eulogy for some ism that has reached its usefulness. Like capitalism might be the first chapter, right? And it talks about all the great things capitalism has done for us and all the ways that it, you know, kind of failed us. Like we would, and then you have like socialism and communism and maybe Christianity, maybe, you know, uh, like you just go through all the myths that we're like pushing the walls against and just give them a really good um, uh, eulogy. The book is t- would be titled Funeralism and it would allow us to then. S- uh, cl- classify what are old ideas and begin working on what are new ideas. You know, these ideas that you see and like that, you know, governments, <laughs> they're amazing. The like, <laughs> I love this, by the way, I love it. And, and to me that that's one of those things where if you could show, if you could show a thematic cross section that allows to be like, do you know what worked? while I eulogize it's like all the good things. <laughs> yeah. All the good things worked. And like the funny thing about capitalism, the, the interesting thing about like the sixties counterculture that, that all like the, the real change to capitalism happened during Reaganomics, the idea of trickle down economics, the idea that if you provide someone that is a job creator, more freedom and you provide them with more safety they're going to rain down success. Like that is the big change that happened during in the eighties. And like that happened after the sixties in which people were like, fuck war, fuck you. And and we're going to make this all better. And yada, yada, yada. Those people 20 years later were going like, yeah, I got to protect my stuff. You know, like, the number of people I know that that were sort of counterculture revolutionaries in the 60s that have a cottage and a house and they're protecting their little piece of the pie that that like they didn't recognize that in the moment well, because wasn't, they were in their 20s. It wasn't entire capitalism that got them the cottage and the car right but well um, well that's that's no that's generational wealth that got them their cottage and their in their house like like I mean all capitalism I mean, to me, all capitalism does. Capitalism is really good at moving resources around. Um, up. It's not good moving at governing itself, up. right? It's capitalism really good at moving, is about no. like moving shit up. No, no, no. It's not no, no. to do about spreading it's, it out. No, it's spread. The it, myth it really, is that it's spreading it out. No, no. It's a very lubricated system for moving resources, right? Right. Um, very, very lubricated. It can move them very quickly. Uh, um, to where where their need wanted and, and desired, right? In, in a theoretical sense, that's what it's good at is moving resources around fast, right? Not right. And when you, right? When up when something like when it when when something like consumerism comes in, or something like weird intellectual property intelligence, or something like uh, uh, financial systems come into place. Well, it starts getting really good at moving them very fast in a certain direction, which is what you were alluding to, right? That when you have an imperfect market, capitalism will still move things really fast. And if your imperfect market favors Jeff, you know, favors, you know, Bezos and the oligarchy of of corporations, well, it's going to move them really fast in that direction, right? Yeah. Um, And so, uh, right. And so, but it's still useful for that. The problem is that, you know, 
capitalism for it to be effective and in producing as much love and intellectual like intellect as possible needs to be highly curated, right? And 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 the populace util, utilizing it needs a really good purpose. Otherwise, it just it's a very fast image engine going in the wrong direction. Yeah. It's funny, I'm, I'm, because I'm so cynical, this is the problem, is like I, I have a great amount of enthusiasm towards the benevolence that you're talking about. The benevolence, the curation of, of, of you know, resources and whatnot. But there's a cynic in me that is just like burning to just pull it all. All I want is for us all to, to just make it happen. I think that'd be amazing. Jared. Yeah. I love the faith. idea of the, well, my faith has been shooketh, my friend, shooketh. That's old myths. This is a new myth. Have faith in this one. I'm, I'm willing to have faith in your myth. I will. It, it wasn't for the I fact that right. you also have this whole thing where you want to eulogize various generations of our world. Yeah, yeah. No, it's time. If, if you I, did, you know, I love the idea that you have, you have one, one mythology that is, is uh, I want to write the eulogies of all the shitty things people have done to each other. And I want to write a thing that is all the good things people could do to each other. Like, the, like, I love you have to do the, good dude, things. you have, you have always had a balance that I have really appreciated where, you know, and we talked about the, the joke about this. Well, what is success? You know, like we, we talked about that earlier. Um, but you, you have, you have very, um, carefully tread this this balance of I just want to be optimistic versus I am consistently pessimistic. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's I think that's one of the the, the nicest things about you. I, I I don't even know like I you know how you know how you you think of people that you've you've had drinks with and you've you've met a, a few like you and I don't know each other that well. But we've hung out in in very intensely social situations in which I and think of you as a friend. Pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You 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 get to it. And the same thing with Stefan. Stefan and I haven't seen each other physically. We haven't been in front of each other for a year, if not a little longer. But we are intensely good friends. Do you know what I mean? That's and it. it it's that resonance but, but that is, but that is weird. Right? It is it's those forces resonating. It's here, here. Reson, resonating and, and, and the resonating. And, and that's what I really love about the idea of the Solarian myth. And that's what I love about the idea of, you know, to, there is something still optimistic about eulogizing what was wrong with, with past generations. I think it is important to recognize the past fictions, the fictions of the fictions of the past, which lends itself to the optimism of the Solarian myth. I, um, I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to cut us off. I feel like we're, we're in a, and we're in a, in a good, good spot, but I, I feel like we should be done. Like I, Stefan, do you, do you feel like this is, yeah, I think this has been a, a fantastic conversation. I think that we've left it open for there to be, like a future part three. I love it. Well, let's, let's say thank you. <laughs> Stefan, let's say thank you, Jared. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for two, yeah, the this two has of been you. A blast. And thank you to 
all the science fiction authors that poisoned my brain in my youth. Mm. <laughs> this episode of Can't Sell This was produced in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. All creative content contained in this episode is copyright Stefan Grambart and Hugh Elliott. Intro voice by Jeff Wright. Intro music track is Energy by Not Of from their 2015 album Peak. Questions or comments can be sent to admin at can'tsellthispodcast.com. Any other information can be found at can'tsellthispodcast.com.